Hey, what's up? This is Seth Mosley, and you're listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. Today in studio, we have with us Aaron Schust. Aaron has been a massively successful artist, worship leader, and songwriter over the last decade and has written one of the biggest songs to be performed in churches all over the world, My Savior, My God. So in today's interview, we kind of dive into what goes through his mind every time he's making a new record, just like he's doing right now. Is that song always living in the back of his head? This is really the story of a guy who had a massive song right at the beginning of his career. But the amazing thing about Aaron is he's been following up every record very strong, and he's got a new record coming out on Centricity Music, just recorded live in Nashville, Tennessee. And we get to hear his backstory. So if you're an artist out there, an aspiring artist, a producer, a writer, or wanting to work in the music biz, this episode is going to be very enlightening for you to hear his story and his insights. But just a quick message before we dive in. Hi, I'm looking for the next big music producers I can add to our Grammy-winning team. And I've created a course to help you 10x your music productions instantly. Music Production Mastery. I show you how we do things like programming, drum, bass, and guitar production, getting pro vocals, editing, post-production, mixing, Logic Pro, and Pro Tools. Who can I help? One, music makers who are driven and passionate. Two, beginners and experts. You don't need tons of experience, but you at least have to be teachable. Three, you must be making great music or at least aspiring to. That's all. So why would I be giving away my secrets? Well, first, I love to teach. Secondly, I am actively looking for talent. Take a moment to enroll in the course and you'll be on your way to better sounding music productions right away. To get info on that course, text the word PRODUCE, P-R-O-D-U-C-E, to the numbers 44222. So if you're on an iPhone, type in 44222, and then in the text window, type the word PRODUCE, P-R-O-D-U-C-E, and we will get you added to the newsletter and send you info on that course. It means a lot that our numbers are growing. There's more and more of you listening every single week. It's been growing ever since the beginning. And what helps us the most, if you would literally just take two minutes to head over to iTunes, leave us a good rating and a good review, that helps us more than you understand. For those of you who've already done that, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And now we're heading over to the studio in Franklin, Tennessee with Aaron Schust. Got Aaron Schust here in the studio with us today. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Waking up slowly but surely. Are you a coffee man? I am a coffee man. I've had a couple cups today. A couple already? Yeah, I'm good. So it's 9, 20 a.m. and you're... But there's there's room for more. Yeah. (laughs) Are you an early riser? I have been recently because of public school for my kids, but I I prefer not to if I have the choice, right? (laughs) (laughs) 6.30, and then my body's starting to wake up, like even on Saturdays at 6.30. Yeah. You know, the body gets used to it. How many kids? Three. Three kids. Two are going to school, the oldest two, nine, seven, and four. Nice. Do you have a family band yet? I'm working on it. Working. Uh, middle boy's got drums. Nikki's got drums. Oldest boy's got a keyboard. Probably get him into guitar soon. And that's awesome. With the youngest is a hand clapper. Awesome. Okay. Best cup of coffee you've ever had. Ooh. Okay. We're gonna go to Ethiopia. No. You know what? No, we're not. I was gonna say Yerga Chef at Ethiopia, which is pretty fantastic. But I don't even know what it was. But in Bolivia. Wow. Staying in some hotel and they poured something out of some amazing silver 
curvy yeah. carafe and it just poured out like mud and it was so delectable so you like it really thick i like dark, it strong thick. well but not dark strong like i i don't gravitate toward like the italian or the uh, like if it's over roasted i'm yeah. not talking like starbucks over roasted i'm talking like you know just a intentionally dark roast yeah. whatever however they do that sometimes it's a little too much for me i like the light roast that has a lot of caffeine favorite nashville cup Mm, I, you know what? I love the Frothy Monkey, Monkey Mocha. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. Good call. We've gotten to work a little bit together, so I know some of your story, but I'd love to just dive in because that's what's fun about this show is getting to hear things that I had no idea about. <laughs> yeah. So just take us all the way back to the beginning. I mean, yeah. what's the backstory of Aaron Schust? How did you, where'd yeah. you come from? How'd you get into music? How'd you get to where you are now? I grew up in a family that went to church. Christian family. I mean, so I guess there are a lot of families who go to church out of guilt, and that's not the kind of family I grew up in. And uh, definitely both my parents were in leadership at the church, a small church outside of Pennsylvania. My grandmother, going back, my grandmother got saved in this church in 1945, right after World War II, when my grandfather was killed in World War II. And her theology was kind of messed up about why her husband was killed. And and so someone brought her along the church to get some better theology about God and his sovereignty and his love. And so my grandmother came to faith. And my dad eventually, through meeting my mom, he came to faith before they got married. And so I grew up in this church where my dad was teaching Sunday school. He's giving the announcements. My mom's leading the choir, playing piano. So it's just like, you know, church seemed to, you know, to function with my parents to some degree or another at the home. Hmm. And that's how I grew up. And and my mom, like as I mentioned, playing piano. She put me up on stage when I was three years old one Sunday night to sing my first solo. So church music since age three. Three was, years old was your first solo. Yeah, yeah. Wow. On a Sunday night, give them all to Jesus. I still remember half the words because it's been part of my story all my life. Yeah. And I don't remember them from when I was three, but wow. um, it's been part of my story. And I just grew up in pursuit, you know? I, I wasn't the perfect kid, but I tried. And I heard stories of kids who went before me, like when I was in junior high, hearing testimonies of the the senior high kids talking about how rough their lives are and the decisions that they make. And they're just, you know, the word backsliding, we get thrown around like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just backsliding. And I hear those horror stories. I remember praying, God, keep me from making those stupid decisions in the next couple of years. Cause it seems like everybody makes these horrible decisions in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so even in junior high, I remember praying those prayers, God, keep me from that. Keep me on pursuit. Keep me following you. Went to college in Georgia. So I moved away from Pennsylvania after graduating high school and got a degree in music education. But I always had in the back of my mind this desire to write songs and to perform songs. I was a fan of Christian music growing up. Mm. And so I always thought that's something I would like to do. Didn't think it would ever happen. I thought, what are the chances of that happening? So just to be safe, I pursued a degree in music education, high school chorus, concentration. And I started working at a church when I graduated from college and leading worship which kind of was kind of cool because they had this little college band and we'd play for coffee houses and whatnot and with, yeah. with our band and play around at some of my friends who just graduated their youth groups. We'd, we'd do that. But then I started working at a church and all of a sudden my audience changed to a congregation. And I thought, boy, I could take this songwriting hobby of mine and kind of morph it into writing songs for the church that gathers on Sunday mornings and give them a voice as they sing to God. And that kind of changed things for me. Sure. Is uh, It wasn't just singing about life or even about God, but singing to God, knowing mm. that he hears. Yeah. And that's when I started writing songs that ended up on a record eventually, inadvertently. Yeah. Ended up on the radio, seemingly inadvertently to me. <laughs> you know, wasn't I was trying to learn to, what it means to be content where I am and being content in a home church and stationary every week, even though I had this desire planted in me, I believe, to travel and to take it outside those walls. 
So was that in Pennsylvania? That was now in Atlanta. So once okay. I moved down to Georgia for college, I took a job leading worship in Atlanta. Okay. Took the job in 2000 and made that record in 2005. Gotcha. Four, four and five. Well, that's an interesting story because I remember the first time I saw your name. I mean, I was, this is, you know, showing how, I guess, young I am. But I, or I actually, how old I am, true, <laughs> true. <laughs> I graduated in 2005 from high school. Okay. So I remember hearing the song and seeing your name. And I was always kind of a nerd in terms of looking at the liner notes and like right. what label and who produced the stuff. And I didn't really recognize, I mean, your name was new to, to the whole right. scene and the label, the was, label new. was new. Brash. Everything was yeah, just like new. super new. So what was Brash? How did that whole thing yeah. even happen? Um, and I, this is a story I get to share with some people who maybe at a concert will come up in line and you know, they'll say, hey, how do you make it? Everyone's heard this question. How do you make it in the music industry? And it's like, well, first of all, I'm not sure what make it actually means. There's not a point in time where you're like, I've certifiably made it. Wow. You know, but everyone's story is different. So for me, I got you up to the point where I told you about this, how my audience has changed to a congregation. And every Sunday morning, I'm, now I'm recognizing some of the same people, of course, because they're coming back to church every week. But I started writing these songs with the church in mind, started writing these songs like, what? That, that guy that I see stand up in the fifth row every day, and he kind of looks like he doesn't want to be here. When I put words up on the screen, whether it's a song that I choose or whatever, or someone else chooses, what does he want to sing? What's going to break him out of his shell? When I say, hey, I want you to communicate with a God that you don't see with your eyes. You know, I can tell he doesn't want to be there. What's going to break into his heart and his mind? I started thinking, I should, I should try to write some of these things. And so I started writing songs with that guy in mind and that lady mm. in mind and the, and the church body that met at Perimeter Church in Atlanta, Georgia mm. in mind. And eventually one of the guys, Mike Seamus, who played guitar, played acoustic guitar in one of the teams, it was a larger church, a lot of teams. He'd say, hey, I like that song we did for the offertory today. Who is that? It's like, well, I, I wrote that song. Oh, really? Well, what about last week? The, oh, yeah, I wrote that song too. And he just had a couple of those realizations. And he said, listen, man, it's been a dream of mine all my life to build a studio in my basement. Hmm. So like, if I built a studio, can I record some of your songs? And what guy in their right mind who's never recorded anything is going to say no to that? I'm like, yeah. To whatever degree you build a studio, I will come and let's record some of these songs. And so we did. And uh, we made some decisions that said, you know what, this is going to be a little bit more risky. It might be a little bit more expensive, but let's take these steps. Let's take these risks and make this album as great as we are able to make it. Mm -hmm. And eventually, after it was all said and done and we were only selling copies in the church bookstore, someone handed it to someone who handed it to someone else. And it made it into the hands of Brash Music and McHugh, Mike McQuarrie was there and he listened to it. And he tells that he got to about track three or four before he realized this guy's singing to God. Yeah. I like the music. I like the sound. I like the vibe. But I didn't realize he's singing to God, which is fascinating to me. It tells me he was kind of paying attention to the music mm. because they're blatant worship songs from the first word of the first track. But eventually he realized this guy's singing to God. I'm, that's curious. I'm going to look into this guy. So Because um, he, was he not a believer? I don't not... think he would call himself a believer. Yeah. No. You know, he's got some religious background, but I'm not sure he would identify himself with a follower of Jesus sure. Christ. So the fact that they took a risk on signing a worship leader hmm. was pretty cool to me. And I remember when I first heard that there was interest, I told the guys 
who said that they had passed the CD along without my knowledge, which was kind of cool. So I wasn't yeah. out there shopping it saying, please, someone listen to my stuff. I was just going about my life. Wow. I was going about my business. Yeah. And these people who believed in me were shopping it for me, unbeknownst to me. Yeah. So I finally said, well, you know what? It's cool that this, you know, this non-Christian record label is interested. Maybe we should shop it around to some people up in Nashville. Maybe we should shop it around to some of the existing labels today and see if they're interested. <laughs> and yeah. uh, the response was, well, actually, Aaron, we've been doing that and no one's interested. And oh, I was like, wow. well, Brash sounds great. Let's go with, <laughs> let's go with them. And I uh, went into a, a great, like a five-year season of three records that they agreed to. It was a great season. Conversations about ministry were occasionally awkward because yeah. just, you know, belief systems and how do we proceed if this doesn't make sense to you, but it makes sure. sense to me. So we ended up parting ways after that contract was complete. And sure. So now I'm here uh, with Centricity Music here in Nashville. Fantastic. So you were living in Atlanta and was it a conscious choice to not move to Nashville, to not be here in the quote unquote epicenter of yeah, the industry? Which is interesting because I said I grew up a fan of Christian music. So I, I have to just chalk it up to the spirit's prompting. I have to chalk it up to the comfort that he can give or not give about a thing. Mm. And we never felt at home in Atlanta. And that's not a slight on Atlanta, it's almost like as if to say, listen, God called us to be missionaries in Africa. Mm. We've never quite felt at home here because our home is wherever, Michigan. Yeah. But God's called us to Africa, so we're going to stay here for as long as we're supposed to be here. We felt that way about Atlanta. There's no way to describe it except for to say that the voice of the Spirit in your heart, whenever we felt the freedom to move away from Atlanta, we took steps to do that. And that was in the end of 2009. Yeah. We looked in Miami, we looked in Honolulu, we had you know offers. And we're like, if you get an offer in Honolulu, my wife had a job right. offer in Honolulu. It's like, well, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> uh, but you know, we didn't feel a peace in our spirit about that. And I, like I mentioned, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and all of a sudden, it made sense to us, despite the potential snow, well, the inevitable snow, mm -hmm. that we weren't super thrilled about. My wife's from South Florida, and I just love the warm weather. Honolulu, Honolulu, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh <laughs> palm trees. Tough decision. Yeah. So, uh, but we felt right about it, and so we packed up and we moved to Pittsburgh at the beginning of 2010, and spent the last six and a half years there. Me serving in my home church where I grew up, as I described earlier, and and just hanging out with dear, dear, dear friends. We went there yeah. for community. Family was no longer there. We went there for community. Up until earlier this year, did we feel a prompting again from God to move to Nashville? So okay. for the first time, after being in this business for 11 years, we've just moved to Nashville. Very cool. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. And it feels right. You know, even yeah. though we were kind of against it beforehand, when God prompts you to do something, and kind of like Abraham in the Old Testament, where God said, I want you to go to a, a country that I will show you. He had to get up. He had to pack his bags and his family, all who would come, yeah. and start walking until God showed him somewhere. He, he might have felt a peace about it. He didn't know what he was walking into. And in the same sense, we don't always know what we're walking into. But if we feel that it's from God, and we spent some time praying about it, even did some fasting, my wife mm -hmm. and I, we feel like this is exactly what we're supposed to do. We don't know why. We don't know what's going to come. We don't have a plan A, but we feel like this is what God's calling us to do. We can reason why it makes sense or why it doesn't or whatever. You know what? We honestly didn't even come up with a list of pros and cons. When wow. We felt so strongly that this is what God's calling us to do. I remember telling my wife, a list of pros and cons, that doesn't even matter. Wow. If the cons outweigh the pros, the one pro that said God told us to do it outweighs yeah. all the cons. Yeah. So uh, That's it, good. It, that's, that's good wisdom. Thank you. And we feel that, you know, we feel that even if we were wrong, I think God in his grace smiles at the concept that wow, my son and daughter, Aaron and Sarah Schust, 
just took a step of faith hmm. that that he knows our hearts. He knows that we're, we don't have this alternative concept in mind. <laughs> they stepped out in faith because they thought they were obeying me. And I think we were. I really did. Yeah. We prayed, God, we think you're calling us to do this. We prayed this about a lot of things. My dad did this about marrying my mom. My dad prayed this about moving back to Pittsburgh from Chicago. He said, God, I think you're calling us to do this. So we're going to take steps to do it. And if it's not your desire that we do it, you stop us. Hmm. Just stop us. But I think you're calling us to do A. Yeah. So we're going to start walking toward A. And if you really want us to do B, just stop me. Yeah. You have the power to stop me. Yeah. So I, I like that. Yeah. I like that approach. I read somewhere that you said that your family has a lot of reasons to brag on God. Yeah. And it's been given a lot of reasons. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, totally. It's um, I, The biggest stories have popped up in the last six years when we've been in Pennsylvania. And it's come through sickness with our kids. I could go super duper long on, on the details of those stories. I don't need to do that. I've posted a couple of videos on my website that if people are interested, they can yeah. they can go to AaronShoes.com and find the video page. And I tell some testimonies about how God showed up in the dark times. And that's those are the moments where it's, you know, when things are easy, when things are going fluidly, you're like, oh, man, this is good. God's blessing me. I'm following his, you know, whatever. And mm -hmm. everything's great. And it's those moments where things fall apart. And you're like, why? Why is everything falling apart? And in our case, in our story, it's been it's been with sickness. Our middle boy, whenever he was one and a half, he's seven now, Nikki. He was one and a half. He started rejecting food and, you know, just getting sick. You know, mm -hmm. we thought maybe it's food poisoning. Maybe it's that little, you know, whatever virus that's going around. And God yeah. probably picked it up in the nursery, whatever. He'll get over it. Well, he wasn't getting over it. Mm -hmm. It escalated into something called eosinophilic esophagitis, where everything, there's these bad cells in his esophagus and his stomach and his even south, like in his duodenum, south of his stomach, that was actually getting deformed by like severe allergic reactions to food and mm -hmm. like everything, almost anaphylactically. Wow. For eight days before they found something that was going to keep him alive, he rejected water. He was rejecting everything. Unreal. So even IVs weren't working. We were trying to like, you're pumping fluids into his body and eventually it made it to his stomach and then he'd get rid of it. So in the hospital, it was super scary. I'm on the road. I'm out with Big Daddy Weave. Yeah. My friends are like, saying, hey, just go home and be with your family. And I'm like, and I'm, believe me, I'm keeping close tabs with my wife throughout yeah. this going like, okay, this is, you tell me when it's time to come home, yeah. Sarah. Yeah. Like, I will be home in a heartbeat. And she's yeah. like, you know what we got? I'm here at the hospital. I'm in her, what do you call it? An advocate with the, yeah. with the doctors and the nurses. Yeah. I'm here by his side. Our son is never going to be alone in the hospital. Yeah. We've got other people, thank goodness, that community that I was talking about, taking mm -hmm. care of our older boy. And so things would get scary, you know, in a nutshell, and there were a couple times I say where we get to brag on God, where things were completely hopeless, mm. and the doctors were like, "There's nothing we can give him. This is a new disease. We don't have a cure for it. There's nothing we can do." A couple times where they said, "You know," and I thank God I was home at this point in time. Mm. You know, coming to the hospital, this he might not make it through the night. You know, they're putting him into wings of the hospital that are nicknamed the bereavement wing. That wow. like he's probably not. Everyone who's in this wing is not expected to be discharged. So it got super scary and where, you know, we called in the pastors and we called in the elders and we laid hands on it. And we did everything that we read in the Bible that you're supposed to do when the sick need to be made well. Mm. And uh, occasionally there were times where it got to that point where, here's a brief example. He had these bad cells, these eosinophils. And if you have these things in your body, they take biopsies to find out how many you have. And if you have like 10 per biopsy sample, then you have the disease. If you have 25, it's considered severe. Wow. Well, Nikki at one point in time had over 125. 
off the charts, medically never heard of before. So what do you do? There's no cure. So we yeah. prayed over him, and the next morning they tested him again, and he had zero. After nothing had been given to him because there was nothing to give him, but we prayed. So at that point, you just say, you raise your hands and say, God, you flexed your muscles today, didn't you? And you just praise him for that. So you jump on social media and you tell people, hey, guess what? There's a reason to praise God. And it, it, I, I, you can't keep that stuff to yourself, you know? Sure. And uh, you see faith arise in the people who follow you. You see faith arise in your family, in your home church. And God is praised because of moments like that. Yeah. Just when we thought things, you know, started to, to level out after a couple of those experiences with Nikki, Michael, our youngest, is born, and lo and behold, he has Down syndrome. Mm. So now we're like, oh, we, just, we can't handle this. And we believe that God's not going to give us anything more, whether it's temptation or anything in life, more than we can handle because he's going to help us handle it. Mm. Uh, Michael was born with half a heart. We prayed for a healing in the heart, and that didn't come miraculously, but thank God for doctors and surgery. It's been taken care of. But yeah. He was also completely deaf. And after a prayer meeting that my wife felt prompted to take him to in New York, his ears came back. And so it went from severely deaf in one ear and profoundly deaf in the other. I honestly don't know which one's worse, but both deaf, flatlined. We have the charts flatlined. And then like, again, over the course of a weekend, prayer meeting was on Friday, test was done Monday morning. He had full range of perfect hearing with nothing done to him. It just pop, pop, they're back. Unbelievable. Um, Unbelievable. And so... When enough of those unbelievable things happen, you start to believe that nothing is supernatural for God. It's just out of our comfort. It's out of what we're used to. What we call supernatural is natural to God. Yeah. Yeah. So when those things happen, you're like, man, God did it again. So what I take away from that is a couple of things. God is super strong, Mm. lest I forget. Yeah. So when God flexes his muscles, whenever we get to brag on God, it's just like, God, you are strong. So the second point is whenever I pray for something and it doesn't get answered the way I want it to be answered. Mm. It tells me, well, I know God's capable. So yeah. God is not doing it for a reason. And I, in my theology, I don't believe it's because I need to muster up more faith. Yeah. Speaking of the word mustard, we only need faith the side of a mustard yeah. seed. Yeah. Um, and so it's not about being like, oh, I just need to pray harder and longer. And it's just like, you know what? If God is going to do this and I say, God, if it be your will, please do this. And he doesn't mm. do it, I should say. Then uh, he's got a good reason. And I trust him and I, I wait and... Yeah. It doesn't mean I quit praying. Like, I mean, Nikki still has a couple food allergies and I'm going to continue to pray for him to be healed, frankly, until the day I die. And if God answers it in this life, praise the Lord. And if God answers it in the next life, he will, because we'll be made perfect and praise the Lord. Yeah. What a perspective, because I think that's a question that I've had and wrestled with so many times and still wrestle with of like, well, what if, you know, what the healing doesn't come and right you pray for these things and see other people having their healings. And a friend of mine, Mia Fields said in church a couple of weeks ago that we really need to seek after the healer and not the healing. Oh, that's good. And she's smart. Yeah, she is. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> Very wise. So that has to spill over into your creative process. I mean, how has all of that experience, how do you put that into songs? What does a Aaron Schust songwriting oh, session look like you can't experience that kind of stuff and it's not on a regular basis but it's regular enough you can't experience that and sometimes i've seen it in other people not just in my own family experience but when you see it in other situations as well and you're just constantly reminded that god is faithful that god is able that god is strong it's hard to write a song 
that broadcasts what could be construed as lack of faith. Hmm. So there's that famous conversation that happened a few months ago between Bono and Eugene Peterson where they're discussing Christian music today and Bono said, had the statement something about, I wish it were more honest. Hmm. There's too much dishonest music in Christian music. And that brought up a lot of really healthy conversations within the CCM community that are worth having. Hmm. What exactly he meant, what exactly was going through his mind, only he and God know. But it made me ask the question, and I respect Bono, I respect Eugene Peterson as well, respect mm -hmm. them both. Are my songs dishonest? Do I need to write songs that have more doubt in them? Because I think there's a lot of people who listen to music, that listen to Christian music, that wish that just there could be more doubt in Christian music so that we could say we're being honest. Because sure. David, a man after God's own heart, the psalmist, he had a lot of doubt. You know, how long, God? What are you, what are you waiting for? Yeah. And he verbalized that. I've tried, you know, to answer your question, what does an Aaron Schuster song sound like? What's it look like? I've gotten to the place where I try to inject that doubt into it. Mm. And for me, that's dishonest. Yeah. Faith is listed as one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And I've gone through that over the years. As like I said, I grew up in the church. If you're just listening in, I grew up with the background of faith all around me. Mm. And of course, we need to make that our own and embrace it on our own. But like, I'm thinking, what's my, do I have the gift of prophecy, preaching, teaching? I don't speak in tongues. I don't preach. Like, what's my gift? And I remember how blown, I took one of those big old standardized tests. You answer 300 questions. What's your spiritual gift? I'm yeah. Like, I don't know. That's, I'm really curious. The official. <laughs> the official one? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I off the charts, well, not off the charts, high on the charts, uh, faith for me. And I'm like, wow. oh yeah, faith is one of the spiritual gifts listed in the handful of passages where they're listed. I'm like, okay, I have the gift of faith. And so faith comes through in my lyrics. And as I write them, I'm becoming less and less apologetic about that. I don't, I don't mm. feel guilty unless it's like a rhetorical, you know, who is this king of glory type thing? You know, like Phil Wickham and Brenton Brown's, uh, right. this is amazing grace. You know? right. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? That's not a question of doubt. Yeah. That's a question of like, hey, it's almost like a cheerleader thing. You know, who breaks the power right. of sin and darkness? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He does. Yeah. We're, we're praising him. Yeah. And so my songs are full of faith. And hey, the moment I have a, a season of doubt, I don't believe that's a sin. Yeah. I don't believe that God's tisk tisking me. Mm. And that'll make it into a song. And it'll be a season that I capture. You know, I, I feel like albums and songs are time capsules. Mm. And so, you know, when we sit down with A&R, with, you know, artist repertoire team, and like we're picking songs, they're occasionally like, well, this song... You know, this is going to be a great single. This song's going to be great for the church. Whatever. You know, they, you pick the songs. And every once in a while, you have a couple slots left at the end. And, you know, at Centricity, John Mays has always been great to say, what song's really important for you? Mm. You know, even if we've kind of already moved it off the table, not necessarily rejected it, but just moved it off the table for this album, what song do you want to bring back because it's important to you? What do you want to make sure is in your time capsule of an album? I've always appreciated that. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah. what about your process? Because this is always a, a bit of a question that people have of how do you, I guess, well, first of all, do you have a strong opinion on co-writing versus writing mm. songs on your own? Yeah, totally. I began just because I wasn't doing it except for by myself, just, you know, all, all the songs by myself. So my first album is all songs that I've written myself. Now, granted, My Savior, My God was taken from a hymn. Sure. So the lyrics and the verses are from an old hymn. The second album I did, I co-wrote one song with Jason Ingram. Yeah. And that was a stretch for me. I'm like, sure. oh, man, he, they want me to write with somebody else. And it, I'm not sure it was necessarily about, I mean, as the breadwinner of my family, I want to provide for my family. Right. So there's a part that might have early on for me been like, oh, okay, so that song, if it does well, I'm only getting 50% of any potential proceeds. Yeah. 
But I think even creatively, I probably had to let go and say, someone else is going to speak into my words, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. But it was mm. a great experience. Yeah. So much so that the next album I, you know, Jason Ingram produced, and I sat down and we co-wrote most of the songs. A couple mm. of them I could probably pinpoint that I'd written myself. Yeah. That third album also took a new step that I recorded a song that I had nothing to do with. Yeah. Jason Ingram and Brandon Heath had written a song. I was on tour with Brandon, and he came to me and said, listen, I wrote a song about being a dad. Mm. And... I'm not a dad, so you should totally record this song because I was a new dad. Yeah. So that was a new step for me. And then all of a sudden, I began to appreciate the power of the co-write. Mm. And now I can tell you that unless I accidentally finish a song myself, I have no intention of finishing a song. Wow. I'll come up with an idea. I'll stick it on my iPhone. I'll write it down, keep it in my back pocket until a session comes up like we're going to do today. Mm-hmm. And I'll bring out what I have. And if it resonates with you or if you have an idea that resonates with me or a third party... I feel like it's exponential from there. Yeah. You know, and there's no pressure, there's no stress on me to say, I have to finish this song, I need a bridge. I'll write a verse or I'll have a chorus idea and I'll try to make it better. I'll try to make the best I can. But as soon as I hit that wall by myself, maybe this isn't a good thing, but this is where I am right now. I don't push through. Mm. I just save it. I remember hearing that Ian Eskelin did that. That yeah. he just never tried to, and that probably gave me the freedom to follow suit. Mm. He just never tried to finish a song by himself. He'd get an idea, he'd store it, and he'd bring it out later. Yeah, and let other people speak into it. And I love the freedom to do that. Well, that's another thing that's, I feel like, unique about you as an artist is because it really speaks to your belief in the power of a song that so much that you'll cut an outside song Hmm. that somebody else has written. Yeah, if I believe in it, you know, and and playing that song, it's called Ever After. I I call it the Peter Pan song that Brandon and, and Jason wrote, but I believed in it. And I remember recording it, getting choked up, singing those words wow. that I didn't even write. I had, to, I had to, of course, as you're delivering a vocal, you're trying to put the most real, authentic emotion into it. So I'm totally singing this song about seeing my son. The whole song's not about this. The whole song's about breaking the news to your son that the world's not a perfect place. Mm. But there's one verse, or maybe it might even be the bridge, about you know recalling the first time I saw you. And I'm totally recalling the first time I saw my oldest as I'm singing it. And I had to, I mean, I just got choked up for, I mean, I didn't like break down and have to collect myself for five minutes, but I just got that catch in my voice that I didn't necessarily want that much emotion on the recording forever. So we, you know, I wiped my eyes and we did another take. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, like I've done a couple of like worship songs. I've recorded a couple songs at North Point Church in Atlanta have been born out of there, like No One Higher and Cornerstone that was born out of Hillsong. Yeah. Uh, just love, I love the old hymns. And so the fact that they took solid rock and made it so strong, I'm like, I want to sing this every night. If it's yeah. a song that I think I would love to sing this every night, then I'd love to do it. Yeah. And your current single is Ever, Ever Be. Be is a great example. I yeah. had nothing to do with that. That's Bethel. Yeah. And there, you know, a lot of people who don't, I feel bad for them, but they haven't discovered the beauty of Bethel yet. Yeah. Most people have. Yeah. The people who haven't are still living under a rock. Yeah. But, but, uh, <laughs> but the first time I heard that song, like, that's fantastic. It was last January, a year and a half ago, and I was hopping on my treadmill one morning. I had just downloaded the new album. Mm. I think it's track two. And I'm like, oh, what a fresh-sounding song. Yeah. And it's so beautiful, and it's the verses have such thick theology about the faithfulness and devotion of God. And then it's, the chorus just sounds so cool. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed it for what it was until later that year, this past year, whenever it's like, hey, we sh- we're going to record a song that's going to try to identify a song that's in the church that's generating some steam that you can you know, help take to radio. Yeah. Uh, and I said, that's great. I just want to make sure that I believe in it. Yeah. Top to bottom, heart and soul. Yeah. And that song I not only believed in sonically, but lyrically, yeah. most importantly. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's now I get to sing it every night. It's fun. Well, it's funny with that because... 
I mean, we don't listen to tons of music, me and my wife, in our house just because you do it all the time. Sure. You, yeah. you, you don't really listen to it, you know? Right. Uh-huh. So what's funny is since my daughter was born two years ago, the Bethel Brave album, uh-huh. which I don't think that song was off of that uh, one. I think it's it was on the one yeah, after. We Will Not Be Shaken. Yeah. yeah. But the Brave album, that was the song for whatever reason, whenever, you know, we'd put it on and our daughter was having a fit, it, we'd turn on Brave and she would just... It, it was, would just it was bring peace. peace. Yeah. Wow. So Bethel, that album, and then the We Will Not Be Shaken album were that to us. And That's really cool. I heard Special. that song, and I feel like I sent the Spotify link to probably like 10 friends when I heard that song. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, why? Like, this is like a massive song. So oh, yeah. I definitely can can resonate with, and I love your version of it, too. Thank it's, you. It's great. So yeah, I'm, I'm really I, uh, glad to see that. It was fun to sing. It was a little squashed on time and uh, Scott Cash. Yeah. Ed and Scott. And, yeah. you know, Scott was my point man. And yeah. I remember him calling me. I was driving from somewhere to somewhere else with my family on some highway somewhere. And he called us like, hey, man, we need to get a key for this thing. So uh, go ahead and like sing it. Just, just sing it <laughs> goes, as you're okay. driving. Goes, That's good. It's like as I'm driving, I'm like, okay, guys, keep it down. I'm like, he said, so the highest part's the bridge. You will be praised. So I was like, you will be praised. He's like, yeah, that's good. Take it up a half step. I'm like, mm-hmm, you will be praised. And he's like, yeah, that's good. That's good. We're going to do it in A. So he built the track and I came in with thinking like, okay, if there's, because I love to be a part of the creative process. Yeah. It's not about putting my name on as co-producer. I've never done that. I really... I'm not sure that's part of what God has for me in the future. So I thought, you know what? I remember asking someone, what, what's the point? And this is, it's different for every artist. Sure. I'm not condemning anybody or condoning. But for me, I've just decided that it makes no sense to say co-produced by yeah. Aaron Schust. Even if I sat there the entire time throwing in ideas and references, it just it doesn't really matter to me. Sure. It doesn't really make sense. But in this example, I literally had nothing to do with it. I, I went yeah. into the system. I went into the day saying, ready for vocals, thinking I might need to make some suggestions about how this sounds weird and this sure. bothers me. And, and man, it was perfect from the get-go. Wow. It was like, great job. Let's let's lay a vocal down with Everbee. Yeah. And uh, we loved the Bethel version. We wanted to be faithful to that. We wanted to be faithful to the uh, you know the lilt and the, and the mm-hmm. meter and mm-hmm. how it was approached. But, but we wanted to make it our own as well. So. Yeah. So I would love to hear you briefly kind of touched on it, but My Savior, My God, I mean, that's a song that is a really a once in a generation kind of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that's been a massive song in in our genre. Incredible. What? Yeah, you can't plan that. Yeah. We joked even, you know, because we're about to do a songwriting session here. We joked as Jeff was walking out. Yeah. Like, okay, guys, write a hit. You know, <laughs> make sure it gets played on the radio. Make yeah, sure make it's sure big, it in the, big in the church. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, sure. That's always the joke. Like, yeah, or, or why don't you write a why don't you write a great song today? Oh, right. there's an idea. Yeah. Um. So yeah, you can't plan that stuff. But for me, I was leading worship in Atlanta, this Presbyterian church, fantastic church, uh, led by Randy Pope as the lead pastor, Perimeter Church, PCA Church, mm. where hymns were and are very important to that body. And so as worship leaders, you know, they always said, hey, listen, you got four songs. It'd be great if you could make two of them hymns. Mm. Now, you know, drums, bass, electric, keys, that whole setup, it wasn't traditional in sound in any way, shape, or form. So we had the joy of trying to figure out how to take some of these old hymns and infuse them into today's sound. Some hymns that are really well known, like Amazing Grace, Great is Thy Faithfulness, how do you make them sound modern, but still stay true to the you know, allow the people who know it backward and forward to still sing the harmonies they love to sing, right? Not changing the chord progression completely. So anyhow, sometimes those songs would get exhausted 
And we like, we need to dig for some deep gems and try to find some hymns that are out there that no one sings for whatever reason. Mm. And so we were digging through hymnals, digging through hymnals. And I had this Tyndale one year book of hymns, a devotional. Mm. So no music, just words and then a devotional. And uh, I was skimming through it one day, sitting in my cubicle. And I came across this hymn called I Am Not Skilled to Understand, which mm. jumped off the page as a very strange title. Wow. Exp- you know, kind of sparked my curiosity. And I read those words, and I'm like, holy cow, these are incredible. Right off the bat, I'm not skilled to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. And I was going through a season new to the Presbyterian Church, new to the doctrines of grace, what I, you know, in school learned as Calvinism. Mm. You know, it was a little, you know, like, ooh, be careful of the Calvinists. And now here I am going to a, <laughs> a, a Presbyterian Church where Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, are preached as a beautiful thing. Yeah. But it's stretching my theology, what I was used to. And so long story short, after some frustrating weeks of studying this stuff, seeing the words of truth right there in the Bible in black and white, even though I'm like, how, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would God do that? How could God do that? But there it is. It says that God does this. God does that. It was freeing for me to just throw my hands up in the air, as it were, and say, I'm not skilled to understand God's ways. They're higher than mine. His thoughts are higher than mine. But I trust him. I trust that he's there for me. He loves me. He's alive. And so we sang those old words that were written in the 1860s with a new melody that I just wrote on the spot for about a year and a half, but no chorus. Mm. And so the biggest part of the song was, you know, that he would leave his place on high and come for sinful man to die. And then it went right back down to the verse. So it was real chill. It was a real chill song. And I was getting, people were loving it. Uh, And people were getting so like amped in their spirits about it that I thought we need to take, it needs a chorus that's just simple, repetitive, and like jumps up an octave or half an octave yeah. or something and just gets energetic and uh late one night after a rehearsal sitting at a red light leaving rehearsal to go home that melody and those words my savior actually so what is it my savior loves my savior lives so flip it i actually started singing my savior lives my savior loves he's always there for me then i was going to yeah. repeat the line again yeah and there's always that question in songwriting should we just repeat it or should we come up with new words yeah so i thought and this is all sitting at the red light it came fast which it rarely ever does yeah like, what if I said, my God, he was, my God, he is. And I remember the moment that I realized that if I switched lives and loves to loves and lives, yeah. it would rhyme with was and is. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that'd be crazy cool. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I scribbled it down on a Wendy's napkin, the light turned green, and we sang it the next week. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And that was back in like 02 or 03. So the whole, like the idea that it would be played outside the walls of that church, it never crossed my mind. I hadn't yeah. made a recording ever. There was nothing on the horizon to make a recording. Yeah. It was just about... And I've heard publisher people say that, you know, how do you get a song heard? How do you get it out there? And they say a a good song will find itself. Mm -hmm. And I think my Savior, my God, if it's considered a good song that's been found, is a testament to that. I didn't shop it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't upload it to a competition site. Right. It's just like I just we just played it. Yeah. We played it and it it found itself. That's phenomenal. So as we're kind of wrapping up. I mean, that being such a powerful song and moment for you, I mean, a big part of your life, really, mm-hmm, yeah. in your family's life, is that song, when you go in like today mm-hmm. to a songwriting session, mm-hmm. do you have a piece of your mind that's always kind of carrying that? Are you filtering through, is it as good as that song, or are you able to kind of step away and just distance yourself here's from the, it? Here's the thing with that. I, I think I do step away. I don't compare songs. I never. That's interesting. I've never placed a newer song up against the standard of my savior my god i've honestly never done that i do like writing hymns Hmm. i do like uh and not in the sense of like trying to make brand new lyrics sound like a hymn i have no problem doing that 
but I love taking the old hymns that I feel like for that example of, you know, to call it by the name of the hymn, I'm not skilled to understand in America, at least it was apparently big in the UK mm. in churches, in more traditional churches. They actually sing the original and they have for yeah. years sung the original melody with the verse lyrics. But in the, in the United States, it didn't have a life. Yeah. That concept that was written by Dora Greenwell, whatever she went through that day, that she ended up writing those words, that was never sung, or I should say rarely sung in the United States. Mm. And so the idea that I could, you know, infuse new life, you know, provide some CPR to something that was dead yeah. and, and give it new life, yeah. wherever my sphere of influence is, is pretty fantastic to me. So I still, I collect hymnals, not only because I grew up in the church and I loved singing the hymns as a kid, and they're cool looking, yeah. but I feel like they're a wealth of information. Yeah. I love digging through, and some, and most of them, honestly, we don't sing today because they weren't that great. Yeah. You know, but they're the ones that stand out, like "Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing," that survived because it's great. Yeah. Amazing Grace survived because it's great. You know, so uh, I'm always looking for the songs that are great, but unfortunately didn't survive. And yeah. I give it new life. I give it new music. Yeah. So that's you know, I, I still do that, but I don't hold them up as a standard. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time Man, to be here today. My pleasure. It's fun. Thank you. Yeah, it's good chatting with you. Likewise. And welcome to Nashville. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and you've been listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. This show has been produced with editing help from J.R. Chris Groggins and Kaylee Ingram, produced by the Full Circle Music Company. Again, head over to iTunes, leave us a good rating and a good review. That helps us a ton, and we'll see you next week.